President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go to He will fall in fire. Because cable's now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. On today's follow-up to Women Trailblazers, we'll hear the complete oral history of Sheila Nevins. Sheila Nevins' educational background was in English literature and theater, but she found herself drawn to television and to telling the extraordinary stories of ordinary people. After her early career working for several employers, including the U.S. Information Agency, PBS, CBS, and Time Life Films, Nevins found her home at HBO in 1979, where she was hired as the fledgling Pay Network's first director of documentaries and given the freedom to produce them in her own unique approach to storytelling. After almost 40 years and more than 500 films later, as president of HBO Documentary Films, Nevins is still flourishing with a body of work that has earned scores of Emmys, Oscars, and Peabody's. This interview was filmed in July 2001. Sheila, we're going to talk about your career. Uh, you know, primarily at HBO, you've been here for, for many years. But I really want to start and, and ask you the, quite the following question. You've talked a lot about in some of your documentaries your, your approach in terms of getting the audience involved, giving the context, like the whole question of uh, Holocaust footage to open up your, your survivor story and um, the, the torso washing up in the beach, showing things, the dead children. So I want to ask you, just to get started, to give us something that puts you in context. So when we go through your, your career, we have a sense of who you are, who we're talking to. You mean, why do I open well, you, provocatively? Yeah, right. Who are you? What, what, what drives you? Well, I mean, if people wear two bracelets, I wear five. Um, Do they have labels? No, I think that if you don't notice what's about to happen, that probably won't happen for you. And um, I think I've always felt that television has to open in a very, or a television program has to open in a very arresting way so that you can grab an audience that has a refrigerator and a, you know, a washing machine and a telephone. It's not like the theater where you're sitting in darkness and you're captive or like a theatrical movie. Uh, you have to demand attention um, and you have to be different and you have to be out there and direct and affronting and honest and brash. Otherwise, it's very easy to go to any of those other things in someone's home because after all, you are someone an uninvited guest in a home, um, or at least you're auditioning all the time. And um, so I always try to make the opening of all shows arresting, so that you won't leave. Now, this you is know. somewhat. I know you have a you know somewhat theatrical background. You went mm-hmm. to uh, high school performing arts in yes. New York, mm-hmm. uh, Yale Theater School. Talk a little bit about your well, background. Well, interesting because probably it's the differences that make me feel differently about television. When you go to theater, you have a captive audience. They've paid and they're in the dark and they have only one place to look. When you do television, you really are in a sort of whirling dervish business. 
you have to stop it, stop the turning dial, you know, stop the surfing somehow. And um, so it's the differences that make me approach television in a different way. The things that are similar, I think, are that the television is a theater, it is a stage, but it's a stage with a lot of competition. And so I approach it differently, although I approach it in a way that stresses the performance of the people, no matter how real they are, no matter what they're going through. Um, I look at people almost as actors in their own life. And um, I'm most moved by people who play the part of their life with bravado, um, negative, positive, heroic, dangerous, sexual. Um, so I, I think that theater has been very, very influential. On the other hand, I think it has both made pluses, things that I've carried with me, and things that I have known I couldn't carry with me. Um, the, the people that go to the theater in the main, other than musicals or whatever, but it's the top percentage of people, or people on a holiday. Um, television is every day. It's like cereal and milk. And you have to make that everyday occurrence spectacular. And yet at the same time, you have to keep that humanity going. So um, I think theater, but I live in television. And um, I try to make the marriage as compatible as possible. But unlike most of your television audience, okay. I'm just saying you grew up practically without television. I never watched television. I mean, I didn't really... Um, I sort of looked down on television because I was an intellectual. And um, although I did watch the Milton Berle show at my friend Elaine's house, and my mother wouldn't allow us to have a television because she thought I wouldn't get good grades in school if I watched television. But on Sunday nights, I used to watch your show of shows and the Milton Berle show on a tiny little television set. And um, I thought it was magical, you know, and I was sorry I didn't have one. But I did get better grades than Elaine, so... <laughs> My mother must have known. So she was right. Well, I didn't watch it weekdays. I wasn't allowed to watch it weekdays. I don't even know what was on weekdays. I used to listen to the radio. Okay, so you're you're a kid. You're growing up without TV. You're getting good grades. Very good grades. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else about your childhood we should uh, I like enter on the record? I like dinosaurs. I read the dictionary because I thought then I would be smart. Um, that was all. And then home life, anything? Home life? Noteworthy? Secrets. Home life or secrets. Home life or secrets. Yes. Okay. So you go off to college, mm -hmm. Barnard, mm -hmm. studying English. Mm -hmm. Obviously at this point, no notion whatsoever of either being in television or filmmaking. No notion of television, but very interested in films. We didn't have to, we weren't allowed to watch, I mean, we didn't watch television, we just studied all the time. We read books, and, and um, it wasn't until years later I found out that not everybody read every page of every book. I thought that was what you were supposed to do. So, like, if, if somebody read Thackeray, they would have finished it over the weekend, and I would still be reading it on Monday, and I thought that I was especially slow until someone told me that you skim. I was not, I never, I still don't skim. I can't skim tapes either. Because I think somewhere there might be something that I want. 
So, you know, if I take home four hours of screening, I tend to screen four hours, even if it's pretty horrible. And sometimes I'm sure it is. It's horrible, but even in horrible, you learn. You're looking for things. Yesterday I watched an entire documentary about two Russian Siamese twins in Russian. (laughs) Subtitles? No. No. (laughs) Just in Russian. But I thought I was supposed to watch only ten minutes of it. But then I thought... Maybe I'd learn something about language if I watched the whole thing without knowing what they were saying. Not the language, but the language of the pictures. So I watched the whole thing. So I guess I haven't changed much since the days of Thackeray. I'm very thorough. And was that, that true of your your stint at uh, um, studying theater at Yale, post-Barnard? Yale, I was a directing major. And... Um, that was a very different experience because all the guys, all the directors, except for one other woman who was about 400 pounds, were men. And it was in the 60s, and it was very hard to be a female director. And um, it was different. I skimmed more there because I really had to puff my feathers to get through that. Um, and it was hard reading Greek tragedy and Aeschylus and Euripides. and you know, It's hard to be a theater intellectual. So I, I must say, I used to skim plays because I got the characters quickly, but it was very hard for me to skim novels and still hard for me to skim tapes. I rarely fast forward. So just moving forward a little bit here. Fast forward. Well, we'll, we'll uh, maybe not too fast, maybe okay. a normal speed. Um, finish up theater school. Now you did go out. You didn't become a director after that. No, I, was I, it just that, that I, nobody was going to hire you? No one was going to hire me. I was actually a very good theater director, but no one was going to hire me, uh, partly because I married, a, at the time, I married a man from the Yale Law School, and he told me that there were certain requirements to be married then. One was that I could not work on weekends, and I couldn't work nights. And I thought you had to be married, and maybe that was what you had to do to be married. Um, so... If I couldn't work evenings and I couldn't work weekends, then I couldn't work in theater. And, w- and what year was this? Just to 63. Set social context, okay. That's the context, yeah. right. It yeah. was 1963. Um, and so I made that compromise. And um, I didn't know what to do with my life because all I knew was theater and, and English lit, which is what I had majored in at Barnard. And... Um, at performing arts, I had been a dancer and also an actress. I had switched from one to the other, so I really didn't know what to do. Um, but I was married, and I thought that was something you do until I found out it was so boring. Um, and all the things you did primarily take place at night and weekends. Everything <laughs> takes place at night and weekends. Um, so I tried to find a job. We lived in Washington, and I tried to find a job, and I thought maybe I should work in television. Um, And maybe I should work for the government in television because I I had read all these, this was pre-computer, but I read all these job descriptions about doing film research and uh, things for USIA, which was the United States Information Agency, and they provided video information on how great America was to foreign countries. And then there was Voice of America that did audio information. And I thought, video, that's sort of close. So I looked at all the job descriptions and... um, I was on my way to, to a job interview for um, archival research, 
And downstairs in the lobby of the old post office building, I saw a sign, which is where my interview was, and it said auditions, and it had an arrow. And, um, and you know what auditions were. I knew what an audition was more than I knew what, a, <laughs> what an interview a, a, was. A film archive. <laughs> it said nitrate film, you know. Um, it, anyway, that was a job I went for. But when I saw the thing that said auditions, I figured I'll go that, to that arrow. So I went to the arrow. And it turned out that they were auditioning for someone to teach English uh, on camera. <laughs> and you, and you were an English women. major, wasn't it? I was an English major, yeah, but I didn't. Yeah. I was certainly not an actress. And um, there were women like my age auditioning. And so I asked how you get an audition, and I filled out an application. And I auditioned for this part, which was to play Jean in a tape called Adventures in English. And there was a man called Professor Richards, and it was based on a maybe a 1,200-word or something-word vocabulary that the U.S. government was teaching in foreign countries. And my job, I got the job. I, I was, I got the job. It was like a joke, and it was um, very well paying. Was it a leading time. role in this? Surprise? No, it was a leading role yeah. because this was the this was the role. What is an adverb? An adverb is. You know, and then there would be three vocabulary words or two each half-hour show, and you would use them again and again. So you would have to say them. You know, do you see the cow, Jean? Yes, Professor Richards, I see the cow. Where is the cow, Jean? The cow is there, Professor Richards. You know, um, do you like the cow? Yes, I like the cow. So you would repeat that word that was the important word maybe thirty times. I don't remember the details, but it was all done in a very specific way. And I did that for two years. <laughs> So a lot of cows, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, we made like 150 shows, and it was it was it was it, it was insane. I mean, we did insane things. We we just talked nonsense like Pinter. It was like <laughs> I would tell my friends in the theater, "You're not going to believe what I did today." Today, I you know, we put out a fire, and we said the word fire maybe 61 times. Did you put out the fire? There is a fire. Put out the fire. There's a you know, and the graphics were these old fashioned kind of things. But in the process, I got very involved in television because they were making this on two-inch video and then they were sending it overseas. And um, it just seemed like theater. I mean, it just seemed so interesting. And, um, and did you have any sense of the, the production side of it rather than well, being Well, yeah, uh, there was you know, a the director there named Don Misher who later on is now a very well-known television director. And Don was... I don't know if he was a director of Adventures in English, but I eventually would work with him and for him at USIA. I switched from that side of the camera. I think I was a PA and a floor manager and um, an AD. Uh, and I worked with Don a lot at that point. And then as he became my contact. Yeah, I did, yeah. I did anything, everything, yeah. anything, everything. And um, we worked for Bob Squire, too, who was a political a guy who did political uh, went on to do, he's now dead, but he went on to do political commercials for various candidates. But Don... Very, very Don, outstanding. Yes, political. Robert Squire, yeah. Bob Squire, and Don Misher and I sort of worked together at USIA during that period. It was in the middle 60s. It's an ama amazing breeding ground for... It was a great <laughs> breeding ground because Don, you know, was so brilliant and so technically capable. And um, I learned a lot from him. Even though he was a contemporary and gone to University of Texas, and you know, I was this sort of New York theater person, I, I, you know, I learned, I really learned a lot. And then I, of course, very quickly left my first husband. 
um, and then decided we worked in Mexico on a film together. Not, I mean, USIA did a film about how good it was to be an American, you know, or something. But we did it in Mexico for, for people so that you know how great America was. And I got a little fed up with USIA, and I decided not to go back to Washington. So I went to New York. From Mexico. From Mexico. And Don, and husband was Don, in the past. No, at gone, this point. gone, yeah. long gone, 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 gone. So you could just gone, gone, New York. gone. In the sixties, what was a husband? In the eighties, was an affair, or in the seventies, maybe it was an affair. <laughs> no, no, that was long gone. I don't even remember. Um, but then Don so knew Al Perlmutter, and Al Perlmutter was producing some stuff at Channel Thirteen in New York. Which is the PBS station. Yeah, and then I started to work for him, and then I wound up working on The Dream Machine, which was probably the seminal experience in my life, because it was television television without a narrator. Like, See, we made these pieces about various subjects about America, and we were waiting to find who would be the narrator. And we just suddenly didn't have enough money to find a narrator. And I had seen a film... That was the history of the United States in three minutes by Chuck Braverman. It was real fast. And we couldn't, at the end, we'd spent so much money, we couldn't afford a narrator. So um, <laughs> I said to Al one day, why don't we just do that in between the pieces? And he said, okay, let's do it. And I said, and I'll go out on the street and I'll interview people about what they think about the American dream. And so... I did the American Dream interviews, and then we did these quick cuts about American history or whatever the subject was of the picture, the, the story that was following. Just to bridge. Just because just, we yeah. didn't have a narrator. Yeah. It wasn't like a lot of ideas. It's not like someone said, oh, I got a great idea. It's usually this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and that seems to work, and then it really works well. Um, I don't know if that's how they discovered penicillin, but that's sort of... Well, they did. It was an accident. Wasn't it a model? Uh, a lot of discoveries are accidents. Well, I mean, you know, everybody... And all the not. critics talked about this brilliant bridging device that we had on the Great American Dream Machine, and it was it was an accidental, last-minute, ditch effort to bridge pieces because we couldn't afford, at that time, the likes of a Walter Cronkite or a Dan Rather. So rather than compromise with a narrator, we wound up visually and with ordinary people on the street. And I think that's when my love affair began with ordinary people. Because I would go out and ask them all kinds of questions. I would go up and down 72nd Street with a film crew and just ask them questions. And I hired the Maisels because I thought the greatest film I'd ever seen was a sales salesman. And uh, so Al Maisels and David Maisels was then alive. I mean, I think they thought they didn't know what I was doing because it wasn't real verite. But I would just talk to people and on the you street. And you hired the Maisels to do Man on the Street Yes, interviews. yes. I asked Al Perlmutter if he would let me hire them because that was the only name I knew in real people. I didn't know really very much at that point. I still didn't know very much, but I really didn't know very much then. And um, so we went back and forth, and we went to Washington, and we went to California, and we just talked to people about their dreams. And it was phenomenally interesting. Because if you really wanted to know the answer, they told you some amazing stories. And I think that was probably the most important experience. The Great American Dream Machine, you had a lot of experience doing these, you know, so-called man-in-the-street interviews. People, you would find people would open up under those circumstances. Yes, people want to tell you something. Everybody has a story. And everybody has a struggle. And life is very, very difficult, even for people who laugh all the time. And I think that 
you know, the fascination with reality programming for me, or at least the kind of reality programming that we like to do here, is that the way people live their lives is worth telling and retelling. And all kinds of people are interested in how people live their lives. You don't have to be, we never do the lives of celebrities. Because, not because they're not interesting, but because the man next door has an equally as interesting life. The trouble is, how do you make the audience interested in the man next door? I mean, that's the challenge. Because once he starts telling the truth about what he's had to live through, or what he's lost or gained or laughed at or cried at, you can hook somebody. But, um, you know, that's the thing, getting them in there, getting them to watch it. Uh, but you love PBS, just keeping the narrative going. I didn't there. leave, the show ended. The show ended. So I never left just, anywhere. Were, I just, just things sort of just ended wherever I went. Ended. I only left one job. I left, um, what was it called, Who's Who? But we'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. I was going to so, leap to the well, well, you know, it's not that big <laughs> a leap. leap because, over. <laughs> um, there's just, you know, one stop in between, and that was ABC. You actually worked yes. in 2020. I worked on 2020. But I left. But you did leave that. I left because Bob Shanks told me that I couldn't edit my own pieces. He wanted me to go out on the road. I couldn't believe that I left because I needed the job so badly. But it was really... He wanted me to make pieces on the road and then send them back to New York. And the way that show would work, doesn't work that way now, but this was at the very beginning. And, he, and what year was this? I don't remember. Is that whatever 2020 began? It must have been 25 years ago. Are we still 30 years ago, maybe. Just 70s. early 70s? Yeah, probably early point. 70s. And I was very excited that I got the job, and I had worked with Bob Shanks on The Dream Machine. And I was th when he called me, I thought, like, you know, I was a rockette. I was so excited. I thought this was really the big time in that work. And um, he explained the procedure, and I acted okay about it. You know, I thought, you know, okay, you know, I'll do these pieces, and then I'll send them in, and then somebody else will edit them. Um, but I, I didn't want to do that. But you had, you had that edit control when you were at Dream Machine. I well, see. I mean, the whole process of putting yeah. it together, it's like someone... You know, I, I can't explain how horrible it was. First, it was very horrible to leave the job because I needed the job. And it was the most money I'd ever made, having come from PBS. But it was, it was NNET. But I just spent so many sleepless nights that I, I just, I couldn't imagine getting involved in a story and then sending it to somebody else to finish. Were there any, any stories you worked on you remember in, in particular? You know, I think the first one was on some... It was just a musician, I shouldn't say just a musician, Elvis Costello. And I didn't even know anything about Elvis Costello, but I got to know him, and he was just beginning in the business, and I just did the pre-interview, and the correspondent was about to come, and I thought, I can't let go of this. I can't send it in to somebody else to edit. And I told, I remember the day, it was Washington's birthday, because there was no work that day, and I called Bob, and I said, are you in? And he said, yes. And I said, I have to talk to you. And I thought, when I tell him that I can't send the pieces in, he'll let me edit my own pieces. So I went in <laughs> and I said, Bob, I can't do this. You know, I have to edit my own pieces. And he said, well, then leave. <laughs> now what you were expecting. Now, I mean, this is, of course, remembering something from X number of years ago. But it's pretty close to the truth because I was so devastated. It must have been close to the truth. He didn't make any compromise. In other words, 
He was the kind of person who used, used to write letters of rejection. Like we like try to write letters that say, you know, thank you for your thing. Your idea is a good one, but it's not right for HBO at this time. And we wish you best of luck with your project. And, you know, thanks for thinking of HBO. You know, we, we just have euphemisms. But this guy, he'd say, we're not interested in your proposal. Sincerely. Boom. And, and he wasn't interested in your proposal either. I didn't think he would treat me that way. <laughs> And he el dumpoed me. I mean, within ten minutes, I didn't have a job. It was de- I was devastated. I to this day, I'm devastated. <laughs> I have a friend who still works there, and she says they still talk about that day that I walked out. But I didn't like walk out. I mean, they've made it like a Pentimento Joan of Arc story. I walked out like a bag lady. <laughs> I didn't feel at all heroic. I was devastated because I didn't have a job. And it was hard to get jobs and There was not that influx of magazine shows. Reality television had not. I mean, now it's a very competitive business, but at that time, it was not at all a competitive business. And there were very few openings. There were none. There were just none. And I was desperately miserable, and I didn't have a job. So how did you wind up working at CBS and Don Well, then I went to CTW and worked on children's shows and wrote children's shows for them. I joined the Writers Guild, and I wrote stuff. For children's shows, but there was research. They used to research and research and have meetings and bagels and experts and meetings and meetings. And I'd like to do things, so I didn't last there very long. I mean, I didn't leave. I never left. But the f- show was funded by the National Science Foundation, and um, I remember thinking when I bought furniture for this little house we had in the country that it had been funded by the National Science Foundation. It was like two years of research before we ever the show happened. The show actually did happen when I was gone. Maybe it happened because I left. And it was called 321 Contact. But I went from that, CTW. I heard about a job at CBS, and I had to get out of there. I couldn't go to any more meetings. And um, so I left 321 Contact. Um, right after this kid that I was filming found a dinosaur fossil, just very bad timing because I think <laughs> I think it was a real fossil. But I did leave, and I went to CBS to work on Who's Who with Don Hewitt. So you got hired there, obviously. Yes, and I was so excited to be hired by Don Hewitt. It was exciting. But you weren't working on sixty minutes. No, but he says I'm the only person who ever turned him down because when Who's Who was over, he asked me to work on sixty minutes, and I said I said no. He said that was the only person who ever done that. But what were you doing at Who's Who? I was doing personality pieces. I would go and chase stars like Richard Burton and Diane von Furstenberg and Lily Tomlin. Isn't that funny? They're both my friends now. And Richard Burton was, you know, I mean, I was so nervous. It was the first piece I'd ever done for Don. And we shot with 16 millimeter film and there was light leak in the camera. And I brought back a film that was no good and I thought it was horrible and I had to call Richard Burton directly I knew his pseudonym in the hotel and I called him he was in Toronto shooting Equus and I had just done this piece with him and I called him and I said Richard this is Sheila Nevins I'm the woman oh yes he said I I remember you I said I I ruined the interview you know there was light leak in the camera he said you poor darling you must do it again (laughs) And um, he was the sweetest, sweetest man. And um, so without telling John Springer, who was his PR guy, because he told me when I called him first that I could never interview Richard Burton again. So, of course, 
I had to do what I had to do. I refilmed him in New York. And John Springer dug his nails into my arm and he said, don't you ever do that again. Call Richard directly. Went right around him, right? Well, you know. But I got the interview. And I got him to sing How to Marry a Woman again. Was there a lesson in that in terms of really gotta going do, for what you got to do what you got to do, especially when you're not hurting anybody. And just because someone's mean doesn't mean they're right. But you, you said that you turned Don Hewitt down to work on 60 Minutes. You were the only person to ever do that. You said, well, I, you know, maybe that's like my apocryphal memory, but that's how I remember it. I didn't. Tr- I would never turn Don do it. Don you it down. I mean, he and Mike are probably my mentors in this business, and they're certainly my mentors in aging. But um, I couldn't go around with a correspondent. There's certain things you can't do. You got to do what you got to do, and then there's certain things you can't do. It, it was very difficult for me to go around with a correspondent to do all the research, to do all the pre-questioning, and then have someone come and ask the questions off what was then teleprompter. Because your heart would go out of you. I mean, like, I had this very close relationship with Lily. And then Barbara Howard would come in and ask my questions of Lily. I didn't want to be on camera, but I began to think you didn't need to have a correspondent. Um, just like we learned on the dream machine that the, that's why I asked if you were going to ask me questions, that the person being questioned is the star of the show. The you subject. Are, you are. No, but I mean, I mean the, no, but I mean the star of a story does not yeah. have to be interpreted by a correspondent. You know, you don't have to have somebody say, and then we went to find Jenny Smith and she was, you know, sitting by the fire mourning the loss of her son in the Gulf War. You don't have to do that. You just simply have to have Jenny tell her story. And the 60 minute style, which was so brilliant, um, and was based on those great superstars, you know, at the time it was Mike and it was Dan and I think it was, I can't remember who the other ones were, and Morley Safer and, um, Reasoner, Harry Reasoner. I mean, these people were superstars, and they, the, tele, the television audience wanted them. But I wanted the stories. I didn't want the correspondence. And um, that was why I thought that wasn't right for me. And the, 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 the model of the dream machine, the accidental model on purpose of the dream machine, which was stories told without interpretation began to be what I really wanted to do. And then I knew what I wanted to do. So now we're at the point in the narrative, finally... Unemployed again. Unemployed again, but finally we we're about to get to HBO, so tell me how that happened. You, you knew what you wanted well, to do. You wanted to do this kind of particular okay, kind I'll of program. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Who's Who was in the process of being canceled. And Don was looking for people for 60 Minutes. And he'd interviewed a few people, of which I was one of them. And I was... a. F- Afraid to turn him down, although I ultimately did. Simultaneously, I heard that there was something called home box office, which I didn't know what it was. And um, they were looking for a director of documentaries. And the truth is that I thought, <laughs> and this is very honest, but I'll go for it. I thought I was a member of the Writers Guild, and I thought that if I could be a member of the Directors Guild then I could get total psychiatric coverage instead of 50%. I could get 50% and 50%. So I thought, well, 
why am I going to stay at 60 minutes? I don't really want to do that. I, I like these correspondence. I love them, but I don't want to, I don't want to make a story and then turn it over and then interpret it. And I'm not the right producer for Don. So I interviewed at HBO with Michael Fuchs and, um, he was sort of brash and interesting and, I found out what HBO was, and they wanted a director of documentaries. I thought that meant, because I'd never been in a corporation, that I was going to direct them, and then I'd be a member of the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild, and then maybe I could get more jobs, i get great health coverage and all that stuff. So I bought very comfortable shoes. So I left CBS, and I bought very, very comfortable shoes for walking, because I figured I'm going to be directing documentaries. So you're going to be out on the street. Yes, I'm going to be directing documentaries for this cable thing that I read about. I didn't really understand what a cable was, you, but I knew it was you clear. You didn't have one of those things. No, it well, was, yes, I mean, it was eight anyway. hours yeah. a day, and it was something yeah. called cable, and it was, you know, and I've seen a lot of public access stuff, but, I, you know, I, I, I didn't know it was the future. I'd love to say I read about it, and I knew this was the future, and I thought I'll start anywhere, <laughs> because it will be the, I had no idea what I was doing. I thought I would be a member of the Directors Guild, and that would be the thing. So I came to HBO, and um, we were at the time, it was in Time Life building. And I was there about two hours, and this man came in, and he said, we'd like 40 documentaries at the end of the year, and you can pick any subjects you want. And I said, oh, you mean I hire the people? This was Austin first who was in the head of HBO. I think Jerry Levin at that time was the president of HBO. And I said, you mean I'm the one who hires the people to make the documentaries? I said, I was directing them. No, no, he said, you're the director of documentaries. So that was how I knew what kind of job I had. So it started at 13 weeks, and I started calling all the people I ever worked for. Um, you know, can you make 13 parts on war? I didn't know any, I knew nothing about how to make a whole one. I'd only made a few magazine pieces on the Dream Machine. Um, and I'd done a lot of the man on the street stuff. And so I started to hire people. We had no business affairs department. They needed 40 shows because they were going to go from 8 hours to 12 hours. They thought documentaries were a cheap form of programming. And I thought they wanted, you know, documentaries like Winston Churchill and Hitler and, you know, World War II, we did. We did a show with Consumer Reports. We did very pedantic, you know, dry documentaries. And that's how I began at HBO. And I had no idea what I was doing. I would call people up and they'd think I was calling them for a job, and I was calling to give them a job. But I'd just been their associate producer or their line producer in some little project somewhere. And then I, we, we, didn't, have to, we didn't have Nielsen's then. But I'm being a very competitive person. My, everyone who knows me will tell you. I noticed that the movies were doing better than my documentaries. And I thought, why should what I'm doing not be doing as well as something else? And um, From a ratings standpoint? Yeah, I mean, we, we had different ratings then. They were called, um, I forgot what they were called. They had some total subscriber, TSS they were called, Total Subscriber Satisfaction. And, um, you know, they, I saw what they liked. They liked the R-rated movies, and they liked the adventure movies, and they certainly didn't like the historical things. And I thought, you know, I like real people. They like stuff like that's in the movies. Why don't I drop Winston Churchill and put those two things together and make stories about real people that are like movies? Um, and so, again, almost accidentally on purpose, you know, 
I took A and Z and got together the middle. What's the middle of A and Z? I guess it's the 13th M- letter. M, N, whatever. M-N. So yeah, I decided to make a marriage between reality and the excitement of movies or theater and forget Winston Churchill and Hitler. And I did so many of those and they were fascinating and I was so well read and I read books. It's like a barner to come to HBO. And, but maybe I should put theater and film together with reality and see if we could be more successful. And we were. I started to do R-rated documentaries. I started to do documentaries that were about things that were volatile, uh, about drugs, about teenage pregnancy, but not in the way the networks were doing them, not with correspondence, but, you know, the story of a 16-year-old girl or um, the story of a murderer or, uh, you know, a show called Coupling about unusual sexual practices among various couples. And, you know, I started to use the R of HBO to the reality advantage and um, create sort of limitless boundaries for what reality could do. Um, And that meant we could do everything from a program about the Second World War and a woman who had survived it to something about hookers, you know, and uh, prostitution. And um, sort of I've kept that going. But when so, you started uh, this, so you came mm-hmm. in to HBO and, you know, to do the documentaries on Churchill and, you know, the... the no, they didn't tell me what to do. No one ever told but me. They told me 40. Doing. I remember the number 40. So they just said, do it. Whatever it is, we got to... We, we need, we need them time. We need, we need to fill time. Right. We don't want to spend right. a lot of money. What you kind know, of money just did you have it. per production? We didn't have budgets. You didn't have... You just... We had just, no business. We didn't even have a business affair, original programming business fairs. They were doing the... The Polka Festival somewhere and a few stand-up comics. It was the really beginning, beginning of HBO. It was so exciting. It was like, you know, just anything could happen. I mean, it was scary exciting because maybe some people knew what they were doing, but I can tell you I did not know what I was doing. Um, but that didn't either inhibit you, nor did anybody else at HBO well, I, inhibit you. I had, at this point, begun to believe that the truth of all things was probably that nobody really knew what they were doing. And then, not just you. But I never said that. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's true. I'm sure there's some people that know what they're doing. But um, at least I thought people knew as much, maybe sometimes more, but not much less than I knew about what they were doing. I mean, I, you know, I thought that I had had the right background to make something of real people and that I could do it as well as anybody else could do it. And I certainly had been trained by very good people. Al, Don Misher... Um, the experience at CBS, uh, you know, just just watching the stories that worked. I once heard Don Hewitt say, he was in an editing room, it was very, very late at night, and I heard him say to someone, that isn't sexy enough. And it was an interview with Kissinger. And what did he mean by that? I don't know, I was too afraid to, <laughs> you know, at that point. Those names like Don and Mike were scary to me. I would never say, what did you mean by sexy? But I think I know what he means now. It wasn't hot. It wasn't anything that people were really going to watch. It wasn't different, you know. Um, You know, 60 Minutes is a cowboy show. It's three cowboys who go out to right wrongs, or four. Now they have girl cowboys. Those were boy cowboys when I was there. I mean, everything that works has a theatrical or a 
movie or a plot association with something that has been successful before. Um, there are probably not that many stories anyway. Was there something when you started this change in direction, mm-hmm. a particular documentary that you did that, that stood out as you felt that you were... You know, I feel something interesting that? that happened. It happened with Winston Churchill. He, I, you wouldn't think that that would have been the one, but it was around Winston Churchill. Um, because Winston Churchill, I read somewhere, and we had it in our f- half hour, which was not an exceptional half hour, um, when they, he was asked what his deepest regrets were, he said that his father had not been able to see him be a success. And when you see a great man have such a small human request, it's sort of the key to what matters. And you don't have to chase down Winston Churchill's or superstars to find those kind of lines. So I think from that, I always remember that because to me it was the high point of, of his life. Just like it was the high point when I found out that Hitler had one testicle. You know, when you try to imagine, and that he was a mediocre architect. You know, the, the, the things about famous people that made them crazy or interesting were the things that happened to real people, the deficits of character, the imperfections of their physical selves, um, the need to be loved by their parents. You know, all these things seem to be things that would happen to everybody if I could just get them and tell stories about them. And to me, the most exciting stories and the best documentaries are really the ones that are about people that do extraordinary things. And by extraordinary, I don't mean climbing Everest. Um, It may be murder, and it may be um, dying nobly, but it's not necessarily what you think it is. But I, I, I learned from those shows that we worked on. I learned mostly from the movies and how well they did. I learned a lot from theater, and I learned from my really my three mentors, Mike and Al, and certainly Don Hewitt. And Don, because of the vigor, the incredible vigor and spirit that he would infuse in people. And I have, I, I did a piece, when I did a piece on Lily Tomlin, he called, Richard Burton piece that finally came through. He called me that night to tell me that it was the best piece he'd ever seen on a personality. And the next day I said to Andy Lack, who's now the head of NBC, I said, Andy, Don called me last night and told me that my piece was Don, the best piece he'd ever seen. He said he told me that about my Lillian Hellman piece. (laughs) 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 Don has a childlike, I can't explain it, energy. I don't know if he has it now. I haven't worked for him for a number of years, but occasionally we've been on the phone about things for what he does. He has a vigor for the experience of life, you know, and and for the way people live it and do it and all that. And although they do do celebrities, they do all kinds of people in 60 Minutes. And you know what else is great about Don and Mike? They were my superheroes, but they're just guys, you know. And and um, you really can't in this business because you're relying on real people to make your living. You can't become arrogant in what you achieve. And those men are not arrogant. There are people in our business who become very, very arrogant. They leave aside the, you know, the person who sweeps the office at night. But the fact is that that person could be the source of their next story. You know, and, um, 
and also jobs are very fragile. I mean, I've had this job for a long time, but it's very hard for me to take it for granted. I still think, although I'm not afraid, I still think I could lose it. And I know when you don't have the job, you don't have the power. That the day you leave HBO, your phone doesn't ring anymore. And so many people mistake the power of their organization for their own power when in fact, and I've seen it here, the next day they're out of work and nobody calls them anymore. So I've been a great survivor here. I've watched, you know, many empires fall and, you know, known people topple. Um, so you can't really be arrogant. And one thing about Al and Don and Mike, they're not arrogant people. They're they still call people that work for them on the phone and tell them they did a great job. When we did the depression show, Mike called me 6 o'clock in the morning to tell me something he didn't like about that show. But the ferocity of a 25-year-old man who had just made his first documentary. I think this is too long and I think this is too short. And I, I was, you know, I mean, he was 80 at the time when he called. It's just a passion for what they're doing? For the truth, as they see it, as they believe it. Um... You know, and doesn't that motivate you to passion for the truth? I guess, as close as you can get to it. Maybe if we all told the truth, we'd all shoot each other. I think the passion, well, the truth is the passion to get as close to what motivates behavior as possible and not bore people. Remember, all this stuff sounds real good if I was teaching a course in psychology, but I'm not. I'm in a business in a corporation, and I have to make money for them, and I have to make people watch. So, you know, but there's, you know how there are no, no cowards in a, what is that word, no atheists in a foxhole? There are no boring people in a hospice. No one dying is boring. I mean, I've done so many shows about dying. There is no Alzheimer's person who isn't fascinating. There's no young person dying of cancer who isn't Joan of Arc. Even in fear, you know, it's just there are certain situations that bring out in people the most extraordinary qualities. Um, psychopaths are interesting. They're like people with a missing limb, you know? You have to be open to see it. You have to be willing to listen. Yeah. Just going back to something you said a moment or two ago about, you know, if for some reason you left and nobody would call you, I mean, here's a few reasons why they call you. Uh, productions, you <laughs> productions you've worked on. You know, I have to get this in here. Yeah. 39 Emmys. I think okay. these numbers are right. 17 Peabody's, including one for you personally as a career recognition, and uh, 10 Academy Awards. Right. So I think that, you know, that's they kind of... They still don't call. They still wouldn't call. Yeah. I'm not saying you can, you know, rest in those laurels, but that's... that's you can't uh, rest on anything. ...an impressive achievement. I mean, for you as well as for HBO. Hey, listen, I'm happy. I'm yeah. glad to have those things. Yeah, I shine them and I leave them and I like them, but I'm just telling you, nobody calls you when you don't have a job. When you don't have the money to pay for that person's project, nobody courts you. As a matter of fact, people... No. No. I mean, I left HBO for three years to be an independent producer. And the phone did not ring. And what, what time period was that in? My son was small, 70, 80, 80 and a half to about 84. And I didn't make a living because I poured over my subjects too much. And I did two shows. I did Eros America, which was a sex show, and I did Brain Games, which won a Peabody, which I got the idea from a placemat. My son is very hyper and 
the placemat was the only thing that would keep him in place, you know, complete the dots and do all that. And I was doing Eros America Cinemax then. It was the first sex reality show, and I knew it would be a success, and I didn't want to give it away. This is an independent, independent producer. Right, right, okay. And I had my own little office, and everything was very charming, except I, I wasn't making a living. That was the only problem. I mean, I really wasn't making a living. Um, I wasn't smart enough. I didn't know enough about finance. HBO owned everything, and I was really a producer for hire, and I was, I, I, you know, I liked the work so much, I wasn't smart about the deal. And why was Eros America and Cinemax versus HBO? Because HBO was tentative about sex programming at that time, but I wanted to do it so badly. And Michael let me do it on Cinemax. And um, I had gathered these books from the 60s that had been banned, Eros, and I said, you know, and, and it was a very successful show on Cinemax. So when I came back, I transferred that to Real Sex on HBO. Um, and then Brain Games I did really for David, for my son, because I felt that I spent so much time at work and I wasn't really, and it seemed to be the only thing that interested him was the placemat. And so I brought the placemat in and um, to Michael, I think. I can't remember who was my boss. I mean, literally the placemat? Oh, yeah, literally the placemat, <laughs> complete. And I made a show out of that placemat. Um, you know, I went and got Victorian Rainy Day books, and I did, you know, what's wrong with this picture, and like a, be a you know, an airplane would fly over something, and we, we call, I mean, it was all kinds of things. I did sounds, and you try to figure out what the sound was just by listening and seeing the sound go up and down. I did whatchamacallits, which were things where you'd see little pieces of a picture, like the Statue of Liberty, and as the picture was filling up, you would try to, the kid would try to yell out at the television what it would be, and um, it was a great gift to be able to make that show because it involved me, you know, sort of two worlds combined, personal and work. And and then it won a Peabody, and when it won a Peabody, I couldn't get back to HBO in those four years. The phone never rang, I didn't make any money. Eros was a successful show. They wanted to, me to keep making Eros America, but I wasn't making any money on it, and my world was pimps and whores and hookers and strippers, and they would call all the time, and I knew everybody's name, and I thought, this is ridiculous, and that's why I said you better let me do brain games because I'll never work again. You know, I meet somebody on the street, what are you doing? I'm doing a show about hoes and dips. And, you know. So then I did brain games. And when brain games won a Peabody... Was that your first, by the way? My first... Peabody? Peabody. No, the first Peabody I won for HBO. This is my... Okay. But, this, but this was... HBO had not submitted the show. They didn't think it was good enough. I submitted it by myself. Just out of spite. And it won. <laughs> and so the day that it won, I didn't know it had won. Michael called me to tell me it won, and uh, and it hadn't been announced yet, but he always would hear things before anybody else would hear them. And he called me in my office, and I hadn't heard from him in a long time. I said, Michael, please let me come back to HBO. And he said, okay. We'll take you back. We'll take you back, but you'll do family, and you'll do docus. And so I came back. And then the phone rang, and I got flowers, and people called me, and... <laughs> And you I was felt popular. Like the real again, right? I was popular. People liked me. I was different on Wednesday than I was on Tuesday because I had a job. And HBO was a big machine and still is a big machine. Um, so you said you were, so we came back, you're doing documentaries as well as family stuff. Right. And the documentary by that point had been liberated because of Eros America on Cinemax. The R rated documentary now could take full swing. And I went for it. I mean, I did real sex, and I did taxicab confessions, and I did shock video, and 
talk you about. Know, I did private dicks, and I did. I mean, I just let the human body just have a good time. But I just <laughs> thought, you know, the first sex show we ever did here, we had a sex consultant, and uh, her name was Shirley Zausner. Just to get, Z- get it straight. Zausner. Yet to make sure we weren't being purient. Yeah. And slowly I began to believe that sexual freedom and First Amendment issues were very tied because the more I read about sex and the more I read sex in literature, I realized the freedom of literature and the restrictions of television. And then since HBO was, you could select when you wanted to eat and a kid didn't have to watch sex. I mean, they had burning bodies at 7 o'clock, but you couldn't have two people, you know, especially if they were black and white, hugging each other at night or being naked. So I began to be sort of (laughs) a sexual zealot. Michael always said that I was the least likely person to do sex programming. But once I started doing it, I became the most likely person to do it because I really, um, I thought it was fun. I thought it was great. I thought it was all, how great the society is so repressed or they wouldn't be very successful. Um, And of course, a lot of this involves real people, not just... It all involves real people. And it involves behaviors of real people. And people who are sexually free, interestingly enough, are some of the honest, most honest, nicest people in the world. That sexual repression seems to be at the core of so many peculiar behaviors. Um, and the wonderful thing about the show was, you know, we go out and test it and everybody would say they didn't see it. And yet the ratings were like sky high and... Oh, yeah, I think I caught it once. I think, I, yeah, it's not for me. I think I watched it. And, but times have changed now. People say, I watch it and I like it. You know, there's a whole new, I guess Sex and the City's had a lot to do with that. But maybe Real Sex has had a lot to do with it, too. Well, G-string divas, you know, yeah. all this stuff. I mean, what's the big deal, for Christ's sake? You know. But talk, talk about... Um, you know what the networks do? Like, if it's sweeps, they suddenly get very interested in date rape. They do all these programs on date rape and and uh, uh, sex killers and you know, but, but really what they're doing is they're trying to get ratings because they're seeing women in bikinis running around. Here I worked at a place where we could have women in bikinis and they could take them off, and I didn't have to pretend it was a piece about date rape. Didn't mean I couldn't do a serious documentary about date rape. But, and you could um, do it besides just doing it in May and November too. Yes, I could do it besides <laughs> May and November. Well, really, one of your signature reality sex confession, mm-hmm. and I've already given away what we're talking about, this taxi cab confession. Let's talk about the uh, the genesis of that, where that came from. Taxi cab was another one of those accidents. Ta- the um, telepictures had a syndicated show that they were trying to sell on taxi cabs. And it was a daytime show in which taxi cabs would pick up people, and they brought it to us. And... It was really boring. <laughs> you know, these little well, girls going to school. Yeah. You know, okay. maids going to work, people going to school. We're talking about know. their lives. Yeah, and the cameras were kind of, it was, it was you know. Was, but the concept to me of hiding a camera in a taxi cab, having this R-rated thing that we had, I thought was very interesting. And on the original taxi cab that they brought us, there, were, there was one ride which could not be in the show because it was about a transsexual. And that wasn't, they were looking for a daytime show. And um, that, that like one this. transsexual who talked about her parents rejecting her and she really had a dick and she really, I would say that she really gave, she was the blueprint for Taxi Cab. Um, it was by, it was a fluke that she would be out in the daytime. And so I thought, why don't we send them out at night on a pilot and see what happens? 
go out like around nine and uh, keep filming till like five in the morning in New York. And that's what we did. And it was unbelievable what came back. Not all of it and certainly not every ride, but it was the nightlife of New York. It was the the sad people who work through the night, the sex workers, the cops, you know, the, it was interesting. I mean, it may be tired now, I don't know, but it's, it was for at least three years, it was a really good show. Very oh, surprising. But we got kicked out of New York by the taxi and limousine commission under Giuliani. The original taxi and limousine commission was very sympathetic to the show, but we went and pleaded our case in front of the taxi commissioner and she was, I guess I could say she was vile. She didn't think it was befitting the image of New York. She oh, they're very high-class cabs. Giuliana, right. Giuliani, and she wasn't safe for the taxi drivers or whatever. And so we were kicked out of New York, which was a tremendous blow to me because the New York taxi driver is like the Statue of Liberty, you know. He's a really important thing. But nonetheless, maybe we'll be able to get back to New York. So the last three years we've been doing it in Las Vegas. Which is okay, because it's a one-party consent state, and they like us there. Which means? We're good for tourism, I guess. We're, no, I, I mean one-party consent. Just oh, it means that a person can be taped without giving their permission, but you can't use it without their consent. If it's a two-party consent state and you have to tell them beforehand that you're taping, then you can't do taxi cab. And there are only four states in the United States, New York being one of the most liberal, where it's one-party consent. Mm-mm. And trails. So New York, Nevada, and, and some others. New York. Yeah. Um, Nevada, let's say, and well, yeah, New Orleans and Washington, D.C. Um, and I think one other, but they don't take taxis there, so it didn't matter. But and in Washington, uh, nobody's going to confess to anything. We did a Washington show. It's on the shelf. It's so sad because the people who take taxis in Washington are really down and out and poor and. I mean, I think when we finish with the series, we'll run it because it's more of an archaeological, sociological study of people who don't have cars in Washington. Although now I think there's more public transportation, but we did it about three years ago and we've just saved it because you know, it's when so you, sad. When you started, you said you would, you would take them, you know, nine at night to five in the morning. Seven, so yeah, somewhere in there. Uh, that's a lot of material for somebody who's, uh, you know. Well, in the beginning, we watched everything. Thorough as you in terms of looking at it. That was the beginning. Now the guys can pretty much do it. I mean, we probably narrow it down from 20 or 25 rides to eight. I mean, we know what we're looking for. And a good ride, you just, you know, we have the vocabulary now. In the beginning, it wasn't true. Do people ever suspect? I mean, if the cabbie is kind of... Sometimes they recognize the driver. Cueing them a little bit? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes we don't use them. Yeah, because you Sometimes. can see that they're performing. It's interesting because people yeah. don't trust that show, and yet it's one of the most honest verite shows. I mean, I always hear Howard Stern saying, they know they couldn't get in the car without no. But they don't know. All you have to do is ride around in the car behind it, which is really interesting. They don't really know. And just see. People so we're, uh, you know, beyond Taxi Cab, we talked about uh, real <laughs> sex. How about some of your other... The serious ones? Yeah. Because yeah. I wouldn't be on this tape if I just did that, right? Well, we want to keep tragic balanced because there's quite a quite a yeah. bit of other work that you've done. What would you like to talk about? The one that I remember from, I guess, about ten years ago, which was abortion, desperate choices. How mm-hmm. about that? Mm-hmm. That about was the nasals, and that was right. um. Well, it's, it's trouble doing a show about abortion. 
is that people know what they think. So no show is going to change their mind. That may be true of a lot of issues, but some things you don't know anything about, like you might not know anything about global AIDS, and you might see a show about AIDS, and it might change what you think about AIDS in the world at large or make the world closer. But people know what they think about abortion. So it's it was really because I thought that there was no, there were, weren't enough classic documentaries about the issue. And um, I thought Al Mazels and Susan Frompke were the right people to make it. And I think it has some great, great scenes in it. And, um, you know, in a, in a strange way, it's historic because it's not really about the issues. It's about the people. In the situation. It's about how hard it is to have an abortion and survive it for some women. Um, it's about the people who really want to save lives and see this as a life. Um, and it doesn't have any spokespeople or experts. It's just the life of an abortion clinic. And uh, you just watch the people coming in and going out, the protesters. And, but nobody's interpreting it. You just experience it. But how about jumping ahead because you, mm-hmm. you then uh, later did um, soldiers yeah. in the Army of the Lord? Well, that's the difference, soldiers in the Army of God. The, yeah. the, the difference is, I think, soldiers in the Army of God, you know when you get very close to evil, like when we did um, Confessions of a Hitler Youth or the Iceman or Paradise Lost, if you want to say evil, although you don't know who committed the evil, you see evil done. Um it's so banal, so familiar. That's the scariest part. If the person who did these terrible things was so unlike you, it would be easy. You know, just like if the person dying from Alzheimer's was so unlike you, or the person who had lymphoma was so unlike you. You know, um, but it's a very thin line between what makes somebody hate and love. I mean, like dogs, you know, they, they, they can be your pet and they can chew somebody to death that comes down the hallway. Um, mostly they love you. But how people turn out is just a source of great... And, and soldiers, going back to soldiers in the army of God, I'm just rambling, but soldiers in the army of God, the central characters in that are hateful for what they stand for to me. But they're not hateful people, per se. Their philosophy is not mine. But their motivations are possibly insane, but nonetheless pure to them. It shows you how complicated it is to to rectify something like the abortion issue. Because these people are firm believers, and what they believe is life. How... If somebody believes that God wants this, can you tell them they're wrong? If they hear God, I mean, the worst people are those who hear him directly, but nonetheless, these people hear him telling them what to do, you know. And I suppose the soldiers, what you do is you go... Soldiers is a scary film. Yeah. Because the central character, I, you know, I wish you were... Confessions of a Hitler Youth is a scary film. Alphonse Heck, the, the central guy there. I saw a show on A&E once about um, the charisma of Adolf Hitler. And it was fascinating. 
And in it, there was a man who um, was a Hitler youth. And he was sitting on the steps of some building in, I don't know where they took him, Germany or whatever, and um, talking about the banging of the drums and the uniform he wore and his eyes were like glistening and all that. And I thought, about a week before, a bunch of kids in my son's class had asked, they wanted to be Cub Scouts. And, and when I said, why do you want to be Cub Scouts? Because mothers have to do that. Said, oh, God, I'll have to leave work and be a Cub Scout mother once every six months or whatever. They said, we want to beat a drum, we want to wear a uniform, and we want to, you know, march in parades and do all that. And I thought, holy shit, you know, these people are, I mean, I just saw that guy on television. And now here I am at Alan Stevenson on 78th Street. These kids want to beat a drum and, and wear a uniform. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to find out what went through the mind of a Hitler youth at the time? So I tried to reach Alphonse Heck, who was the person in it. And I tried to call the producer, and he was in Zaire or something, and I didn't call, we didn't connect, and finally I found him, and he called me back, and I said, how do I reach that guy? I was fascinated with your documentary, and I'd like to just do this one person. And uh, he said, oh, he's a bus driver in San Diego. <laughs> so that was one of those shows. This was before I insisted on getting credits on shows, because... I once ran into, I think it was Don and Gimbel's on AE6 Street, and he said, what do you do at HBO? And I said, I don't know, I'm a programmer. He said, what's a programmer? So I thought, this is ridiculous. i got to get put my name on these shows. So when I came back, I did. But this was the last of those shows that I had sort of birthed, and I, you know, the credits would roll by, and, and, and I had interviewed him, and I, you know, I had found the idea, and I, I just let it vanish, so I didn't do that anymore. I got a little more arrogant about my involvement. But Alphonse became a friend of mine, this Hitler youth. He became a, a friend. Uh, he came to my son's bar mitzvah. Wasn't that shocking to you? That he was my friend? Yeah. It was more shocking to the people at the bar mitzvah well, than it was. Sure. <laughs> but the thing is that Alphonse, although I've lost sort of contact with him, I had him speak to the little boys at Alan Stevenson because I thought it would be interesting thing for them to see how quickly you can go the wrong way. And Alphonse got, first of all, they wear uniforms there. So all these little boys sat in a circle, and Alphonse was in the center, and he started talking about the day that Hitler gave him the Iron Cross, and he started to cry in front of all the little boys. So that was a scary um, experience, because, as everybody here said, once a Nazi, always a Nazi, but I don't know. Alphonse is a nice man, but he shot down American planes at the age of 15. Um, and I, I don't know. But these little boys, if they had grown up in Nazi Germany, they might have wanted to be part of the Hitler Youth. And get out there and, and go the on drum. trips and bang the drum and wear a uniform and go to camp and have bonfires and roast marshmallows and hear Hitler, the Fuhrer, speak and he would meet them and he would come and he would, you know, I don't know. I don't know what makes people good and evil. So is it, I mean, you're seeing in your documentaries this, you're seeing both sides of a lot of people. I think it's very complex. I think that, I think that nobody knows who they are, what they are, why they're here, where they're going. So those are four great things. To leave those aside and go on and make make-believe stories seems to me to be nonsensical, because after all, some people think they're going to heaven, and some people think they're going to hell, and some people think they're going to get deathbed confessions, and some people think they're going to rot into the earth and be flowers, and some people think they're going to come back another time. And I mean, we live every day, and we don't have any idea what we're doing. 
we waste this whole thing called life, and then horrible things happen to people, and good things happen temporarily, and then horrible things take over, and life just keeps spinning, and then it's over. Um, not to try to interrupt it for these little films, not that they're historic or belong in some Smithsonian or somewhere, but that they are really of great interest to people. Um, you know. Well, certainly the... the I mean, the, Hospice, if you should see that film, that was probably one of the most painful films I've ever been involved in because it was what nobody wants. It was watching people face the end. Because to be in a hospice, you have to sign something where your doctor has saying you're not going to live more than six months. Um, and that was a Maisel's film, too. And it was probably one of the most provocative. The other that was the most chilling was Gerda. And um, One Survivor Remembers. I mean, I met, her in the, I met her on a piece of film in the museum, the Holocaust Museum, and I was like so... You were just visiting. I was just her. visiting, and I saw a little piece of her in like a hall of survivors. And I came back and I said to Michael, please let me do a film on this woman. Please, please, please. I know it's not what HBO does, but, you know. Um, Why do you say that? Because we don't do historical films, really. And it was the second anniversary of the, the 50th anniversary of the Second Church, World War was coming. Not Churchill days. Anyway. No, we hadn't. We did Hitler Youth. Every yeah. so often I give myself like a little present. I like beg for a film because I really want to do it. Um, and I've worked so hard on things that I know are right for HBO. I figure that will be my bonus that I can make the Goethe film or whatever. And so we made Goethe in-house. And it was very hard to get her because we did it with the Holocaust Museum. And I just totally fell in love with her. I thought she was the most charismatic woman I had ever met in my whole life. And I had to have her. I had to meet her. I had to bring her here. I had to do this film. I don't want the Academy Award. But... Um, Everybody was doing these big films about the Second World War, and of course I'd already done those when I came here. So I thought I'd do just one person's story. So we just did Gerda's story. And to this day, Gerda haunts. I mean, I think of Gerda all the time. I think of the Iceman all the time. There's nothing, I mean, I think of pimps and hoes and people that I meet on the You're street. Quite a cast of characters there, if you'd mind. Somebody once said together. if I ever had like a party and That's I invited all thinking, the people. Right. <laughs> I would have the most virtuous and the most deadly. Sort of Dante's Inferno. But isn't it a little bit of that, both sides and everyone, isn't that what you're yes, seeing? from this, I think you know? so, but I think that what happens to you in life is one side. Well, I don't know. The Iceman was hit on the head with a broom by an abusive father. So now, a colleague of mine, Nancy, always says that all our films are about frontal lobe da damage. But, um, you know, I don't know. All right, well, speaking of some of these many characters in your uh, productions, Dr. Peter. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a fax one day that was sent to all broadcasters about a, a man, a doctor who had died in Vancouver of AIDS. And they said that they had 130-something-odd uh, interviews, not interviews, newscasts of his that he had for two and a half years delivered these newscasts. You know, it's amazing. I, I'm so close. I feel like I'm talking about, I'm, like, I'm working on it now. Because um, I really liked him so much. And there were... Um, 
Now, was this on, when you say newscast, he was on TV. Yeah, he was a great man. He had AIDS before they really had anything for it. He was a physician in Vancouver, and there was a lot of prejudice against AIDS. And I had read his obituary in the New York Times. I don't know when in relation to when this fax came. But I was curious to see some of these tapes and the documentary or whatever that they had made about him and all that. And it, they were offering broadcasters the, the ability to make a documentary about Dr. Peter. It just said, Dear Broadcaster. I don't even think it was to me. It was the early days of the fax machine, so I used to read them. Now you can't. Between email and fax, you just have to hide under the desk. But um, I, I still, you know, I, anyway, we sent for the tapes. He was the most extraordinary man I'd ever met. Um, I mean, I never met him. I met him on tape. And I called the producer of the news show that he was on. He had done these five-minute segments for two and a half years. And I said, do you think we could make a documentary? And so the producer came. He was a news producer. He had never made a documentary before. And I couldn't let Peter out of the house. He had to be made here. And so for weekends and evenings, we looked at the 200, I don't remember how many tapes there were of Dr. Peter from the day of his diagnosis, all his broadcasts. And we made an hour documentary called The Broadcast Tapes of Dr. Peter. And um, it was the most extraordinary experience because we knew as the numbers increased that Peter would have to die. And yet at the same time, we knew that um, if we didn't get to the end, Peter might not die because he would have these sort of ups and downs while he had AIDS. He skied when he was blind. He learned to play the piano. He fell in love. Um... And his lover, I can't remember his name, built a hospital for him in Vancouver. And um, Anyway. So you basically just took these on-air tapes? He wore Peter's underwear to the Academy Awards. Um, why can't I think of his name? Because I've lost contact with him. But he was an amazing guy. At Dr. Peter's funeral, the, the best, the most extraordinary piece of footage was Dr. Peter had this dog. And when Dr. Peter died... And while he was so sick, the dog had terrible ulcers. And at the funeral, the dog is lying at Andrew, Andy, that's his lover, Andy, his, his, his something. Andy delivers the funeral service, and the dog is at his feet, Dr. Peter's dog. And when the audience stands up to sing, the dog stands up with the audience. It was so incredible. And I have Dr. Peter in my office. I have his picture. Um, but that was one of the great... I mean, I think that's probably one of the best documentaries we ever made. Uh, only mother. because it was it was the beginning of the crisis, and I got a letter from a subscriber, and it said that you know he was a marine, and that he I don't even know what I did with it. It's too bad you can't save everything in life, right? But he said he was a subscriber, and that he really didn't care about gay people, and that he accidentally caught this show in the middle of the night. I mean, this was not a high rating show; nobody was going to watch this show, really. And he said when he met Dr. Peter on HBO, he he um, changed his attitude towards what gay men were like and that he would never look at them the same way again. But I think I, I think Dr. Peter was just, I can't believe I never met him because I feel like I met him. But um, if you see one show, you should see that one. That and One Survivor Remembers. They're the two. And The Iceman. Why The Iceman in that mix? Uh, not a... And pleasant character. It's just another side of the human nature. Because he's evil. Yeah. But he's not hateful. Evil should be hateful, right? 
the devil should be red with a pitchfork and you know but I'm afraid unfortunately you can't always spot them and that's like why a you, cancer cell probably right you don't spot it till it's so malignant that it destroys you well it's so often when the, the the murder occurs in the street and the TV news crew shows up the interview the neighbors and what do they all say such a I nice can't guy. believe he did it. he's such a nice guy well this isn't a nice guy yes man but the audience loved him well let me ask you one about another guy yeah, who? Because you did a documentary on Lenny Bruce. Oh, Lenny Bruce. And I have a feeling that, that he's Lenny an influence Bruce. on you. Bob Whitey. I can see from your reaction. I didn't know much about him until I looked at Bob Whitey's footage. Well, first of all, Bob Whitey, the producer, becomes an experience unto itself. We've been having this crazy email thing. He now does Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. Um, Lenny Bruce? I wish I knew him. Is he perhaps a testament to the problem of going too far yeah. with telling the truth? The problem with people not receiving the truth. The problem with hypocritical bureaucrats who don't allow people to just tell their story or sing their song. I mean, Chaucer was way out there compared to Lenny Bruce. He could do it just because he was on his way to some kind of pilgrimage, you know. But the repression of society when it comes to creative truth and creative freedom and the great opportunity of television to share people that you would never know. I mean, to be, I, I'm not a very social person. I don't like to go places. But I feel like I've been invited to a lot of homes and they've let me stay. And uh, maybe that's why I'm not so social. I've been to too many homes. I mean, a one rating Seems is like 200,000 people. That's enough dinner party. But I don't have a feeling that my audience has dinner parties. I think they have more beer and pretzels, which is great. Because, you know, you, is that you want to aim for a broader... People who don't know that story, who don't know who Lenny Bruce is, who don't know how he shut down so he couldn't breathe, who don't know that he probably had attention deficit disorder and they didn't have drugs for it and he used cocaine to treat it. And he really died from an overdose, but he really died from, from being shut and locked up because he couldn't speak, he couldn't say what he was. The only way to release his his fire was to be a comedian, and they wouldn't let him. I mean, the police, the powers that be wouldn't let him. I mean, all First Amendment issues are issues like Lenny, Bruce. Um, you know, I remember I was at Barnard at the time, and Lenny Bruce was somewhere in the village, and someone said, let's go see Lenny Bruce, and I remember saying, I don't want to see some dirty comedian. But the real thing is I probably was reading Thackeray line by line. While everybody else was skimming. <laughs> <laughs> so they skimmed, they went down to the village while they you stayed and back then in they the learned. dorm. If I'd known that, then I would have done dirty shows here the day I arrived. I wouldn't have had to go through this experience of, well, of Hitler and Winston Churchill and World War II. Well, now there are channels some that do development that. that. There must have been some developmental phase, right? So let me bring you sort of to a wrapper point because I think a major evolution of all Like a boil, was, bring me to a wrapper well, point. Well, perhaps something more pleasant. Okay. But yeah. the sort of major evolutions you get, Boiling finally, American yeah. undercover becomes America a... America undercover. Right, becomes a full-fledged, weekly, mm-hmm. branded documentary, yes. which is very different from where, where most of the stuff you've done in the past, which was, you know, shows up here, shows up there, but it doesn't have an identity. True. And, and talk about that, how, how that affected your work. Well, I mean, I owe that to Chris, because Chris said to me, uh, you know, you, you have to fight for attention at HBO, because there are big shows, and then there are shows. And our shows really clamor to be noticed. 
We don't have a lot of marketing money. We don't have a lot of advertising. Um, we're really on our own, which is bad and good. Good because when we're good, we did it all by ourselves practically. And when we're bad, no one notices. So it has its ups and its downs. Um, but Chris said, why don't you do a series? Why don't you put the shows together? Why don't you make some noise with these shows? You know, you read a review here and review there, get an award, you get this, you know, put them all together. I said, okay, I'll do it. So we did. We did, you know, we followed The Sopranos, which was very, very exciting. And, and that sounds so very, very exciting. That's something like a cliche, but it was very, very exciting. But it was television. And I think that although I've worked in television, I didn't know the television game of getting a thing ready every week and getting the advertising and the thing and the, not that we got advertising, but getting the, the releases out and, you know, hacking Lana about calling the reviewers and each producer being separate and, and wanting attention and love and attention for their show. And yet you can't get a review in the New York Times every week. And then if you got a review for this, you wouldn't get a review for that. And then how did you explain that to the producer? And that, you know, my producers are not like other producers. This is a repertory company of people that are mostly assigned topics or come to us with a burgeoning idea. And then we cast them in that role. They, we don't just, it's not like a news department or a network where one day you're doing Bosnia and the next day you're doing Eartha Kitt. You know, we have our Eartha Kitt producers and we have our Bosnia producers. We don't mix people. People have passions and we match their passions in reality to the subjects that they then do. Um, and are these people You couldn't mostly... give Bob Whitey, who did, you couldn't give him hospice. You couldn't give Lenny Bruce to the Maisels. You couldn't give, you know, Dr. Peter to John Albert. You know, I mean, these people have a, an emotional vocabulary of communication that they translate into their reality programming that you have to feed right into. You have to cast the documentary producer just like you cast a movie or a play or whatever. And these um, are largely outside people when you say cast. Them. Yes, but they've become yeah. a kind of repertory company yeah. of recidivists. And so it's pretty well, hard to break through. But we, people break through, like Edith Bellsberg, who just did Children Underground. I mean, there's a first-time producer who comes through. Kate Davis, who did Southern Comfort. They break down. They, their first attempts are so extraordinary that they knock all rules away. So there is room for new producers. And then they become part of the cast. And, and uh, you know, but it is a repertory company. It just is. It is. Competitive, they all want the main parts, you know, but some parts aren't right for them, you know, not everybody can be Macbeth. And then that becomes your role to keep all these That's people. That's what I am, I'm a casting agent. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. One thing that really has marked the change in cable in the last few years has been, you know, the proliferation of digital channels. When you came to HBO, there was one HBO, and now there are several HBOs of various mm -hmm. flavors. How does it affect you from a production standpoint? For example, I mean, you... You talked earlier about stuff you did as family programming, but then there's mm -hmm. actually now a whole channel mm -hmm. that's HBO family. The way it's affected me the most is many more submissions of material because of digital equipment. But excellence is, is still a needle in the haystack. You know, extraordinary works just because everybody can make a documentary doesn't mean that they're more good documentaries. It just means that they're more documentaries. So... Is the um, barrier to do it is lowered because of little digital cameras like yeah, that? Yeah, there's more product, but then again, there are more outlets. But the number of works that push 
you that really make you gasp for air are probably the same. You know, I guess if you screen 200, maybe you find five. And maybe now you screen 250, so you find 5.2. But um, there's more product, but, you know, it's just not everything's very exceptional. As a matter of fact, there's so much imitation. I mean, something works and then everybody does it. You know, and then it loses its value just by the fact that everybody's doing it. To find the niche that's HBO, you know, to find the thing that is special, not necessarily a high-watch special, but that marks you as different in some way, even if it's a subject that everybody's doing, but something that finds an access to that something that's slightly different. Um... Those are still very, very hard to come by. To conceive and to come by. And, you know, most of our projects are um, co-ventures with producers. We have a little of an idea, they have a little of an idea. Or they have a big idea and we have no idea. Or we have all the idea and they have no idea. But the, usually there's a kind of, you know, blending of of what we need for HBO and what they choose to spend a year, sometimes two years of their lives making. I mean, this is a very difficult business. Nobody gets very rich in this business. Everybody works very, very hard. And the worst, the best producers in documentaries are those who don't want to go into features because they believe the best storytelling comes from the real world. Um, I sort of stay away from people who say that they're using the documentary form as a sort of audition for features. Although after documentaries on HBO, invariably... People who make movies call and want copies of the docu and all that sort of stuff. But that's okay. It's after reality. But if you're going to use this as a training ground for movies, then I'm not the right person to work with. If you believe that the best storytelling comes from real people's experiences, then this is could be your playground. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how we approach it. And I think... We're purists in that way. Not purists in that we believe that shooting 30 to 1 is the ultimate truth. Because obviously if you're shooting 30 times what you're getting, or you're not using every ride of everybody that walks into a taxi, then that's not, you are editing reality in some way. But the belief that if you stick to it and sit long enough, that that session with a real person or a real experience will produce something very valuable is kind of our... Our motto, and um, you know, we are very patient for very for a very impatient medium. Um, speaking of an impatient medium, you mm-hmm. talked earlier about having to you know grab and hold an audience and stop that dial spinning. Now is that getting harder? No, with, with, with a lot of people I, pushing I mean, the envelope, more for, people pushing, trying to well, push the envelope. Well, everybody. I mean, I'm more channels out there. Yeah, sure. There's a lot of competition. But when people say I'm competitive, I think they don't mean that I'm competitive with all these other channels. Because how could I be? I don't even. I mean, I know what they're doing. I watch it and all that. I'm more competitive within the frame of did we do the very best that we can do with that subject? The most discouraging thing is to do something. Like I thought we could do a great show about tornadoes. I don't know where I got that stupid idea. I thought it could be like grand opera that I would quote, you know, Sophocles. and Because to me, there was nothing more brutal than a tornado. It took poor people living in 
poor houses that didn't have roots, they didn't have basements really, and it blew them into pieces, it tore them apart, it tore their cattle and their cows and their trees and their children and, you know, and I thought, the Weather Channel can't do this, nobody can do this, only HBO can make grand opera out of God's, you know, wrath or whatever, who's ever wrath. Well, we made a very a Weather Channel show. I have, no matter how I put quotes in it and, and no matter how I had, you know, people raging against the storm and no matter how I made the music heroic and it looked like it was, but the footage came from the Weather Channel. I mean, I could not bring it to a, to a level of, of uh, I could not make it different. It was a regular documentary. It was still a tornado story? It was still a tornado story. And it was, it was sad and it was painful and it was, it was all that, but other people had done it just as well as we had. So does that, what lessons that leave you in terms of well, because the you future? Can't always be, you can't always be here. sure that just because you think you found an angle that's slightly different, it marks you as being, as being different enough to be worth paying for. After all, this is pay television. Most television is free or basic, you know, or network or advertiser supported. Someone is paying for this reality. I mean, can you imagine if I went out to one of those groups and I looked through that one-way mirror and somebody said, I wish they didn't have that reality stuff on HBO. I mean, my God, they'd write it down and they'd bring it home again. So essentially, I have to make reality worth paying for. I have to not compromise it, but squeeze it and somehow produce it and get my producers to understand who we work for, ultimately, which is the paying and that way HBO is like theater because people sort of box office home box office but because people are paying for this um, if I'm going to put a documentary on after Sopranos it sure as hell better give them something not the same numbers I'll never be Sopranos but the people who watch it it sure as hell better like it otherwise what am I doing here I might as well you know be doing Fantasy Island which I don't think is bad really just don't but think you, it belongs here just kind of wrap you know, you do expect do. to Let be me tell here. you what we do. Okay. We do two kinds. We do all kinds of shows. Every show has a different expectation. If I do a show on AIDS, global AIDS or whatever, and I go to foreign countries, I know that the people here are not going to watch that in large numbers. But I feel it's a privilege to make a show like that that people can see and it can be on HBO and help the sort of reputation of HBO and make a difference in some way. It like nudges reality of the world a little bit. If I make hookers and pimps or shock video or taxicab confessions or and I'm not demeaning these shows or real sex or nerve.com which is a you know, if I make those shows, I better get numbers. G string divas, what am I, I mean otherwise I'm a moron. I have to make those shows as hot and as sexy and as different and as jazzy and as you know volatile and arresting as they should be, because that's what they are. They say what they are. I don't do shows that don't say what they're about. That's why I asked you about the title of that show. If it's real sex, it's real sex. If it's G-String Divas, it's about G-String Divas. I don't like to hide behind a title. I like to give them what they think they're going to get. Shock video, it's shocking video. I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a brain scientist. Hospice, it's hospice. Now, if I do hospice, I know I'm going to get a low rating. If I do G-String Divas, I know I'm going to get a high rating. So, 
My job is not, doesn't take a brain scientist to figure out that hospice can go where hospice has to go. It doesn't ever have to try to be popular because it's never going to be popular. But the, the people that watch it, the couple of hundred thousand or millions that watch that show will be deeply affected by it and HBO will be valuable to them because of it. But they won't go into hospice thinking they're watching another show. I'm not going to call it A Time to Remember or Daddy Loves Me or one of those kind of euphemistic titles. The same is true of G-Sting Divas. I'm going to get a rating on that show. I'm going to sell it hot. I'm going to sell it mean. I have a show on now called Size Matters. It's a real sex repeat. I'm not going to call it anything but what it is. If I do a show about penises, I call it private dicks. If we do a show about breasts, we call it breasts. Um, so, is this a truth in packaging kind of? Uh... <laughs> no, it's a truth in expectation, I guess, coming from a truth in packaging. To be really disappointed here, the expectation for a show has to be not what you expected. However, if hospice did as well as G-String Divas, I would not mind being disappointed in my expectations. However, you deliver what you have to, to keep, to keep the balance going. And I don't, I think Pimps and Hoes, I think the first show we did, Hookers at the Point, was one of, was a very, very fine documentary. I think the music was great. I think the life of the women was interesting. I think why men were there was interesting. I mean, we're trying to get a hidden camera now into a bordello. Not to show the sex. I want to call it, no sex, please. It's a bordello. Because the irony about men that go to the whorehouses is a lot of them don't even want sex. They want to talk about sex. They want to talk about their problems. They want to feel aroused. They want to rat on their wife or their girlfriend. They want something different. So... It doesn't have to be sex to get a good number, but it has to be in that area of out-thereness, and it has to say what it is. Um, taxi Cab Confession Taxi We have probably the most unimaginative titles in the world, but we labor and labor over these titles so that they get what they're paying for. They know what they're getting. Yes, I guess it's truth in packaging. I never try to call a show something hot so that it will fool the audience into getting something cold. I just tell them what it is. Um, and and I try with the promos, too, not to court them into the wrong arena because I don't want them to be disappointed. I mean, you could sell a show, some shows you could sell, like The Iceman, I'm going to sell a killer and I'm going to go to town on him and I'm going to be really, I mean, that promo for that was really way out there, but I'm not going to sell hospice that way, you know. Be with them at the last moments before they, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say if you dare to feel what it's like, watch hospice. If you have the courage. But I won't sell it any other way. So, you know, it's a very complicated and fascinating and always interesting balancing act between being in the business of television, being in the business of caring about people on some level, and being in the business of being entertaining, ultimately, which is what it all is. So, um, and what is there anything left? What's ahead of you as a challenge? Is there something that I mean, with all these accomplishments, what 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 still fires you when you come in here in the morning? You seem pretty fired up when you. Came I'm always in here. fired up. I don't know. I seem to forget. You know, you forget pain. I forget pleasure. <laughs> Didn't Ford say you forget? You forget pain. I mean, I, I know that we've won a lot of awards. I do. Um, 
but I'm always, the minute the award is done, I, I can't tell you how done it is. That's it for you? Cooked. The goose Onto is cooked. The, you're only interested in the upcoming project. I would say so. I don't like losing. I remember everything I lost more than what I win. But, I mean, when you win something, I mean, we do so much. We, I, I would think we'd have to win after a while. And we spend so much, and we're so luxurious here, and we have so many perks, and we have so much money and so much time. It's not ready in October. Well, that wasn't true with Sopranos, but generally HBO docus. If it wasn't ready in October, I'd say, it's not ready in October, I'll deliver it in January. Goodbye. And I'd labor over it for three more months. Who has? That's not television. That's some kind of gourmet thing. I don't know what that is. So we couldn't afford not to be good. We really couldn't. We had a lot of breaks to be good. We had no advertising. We had the resources. We didn't have a continuing, the pressure of a continuing schedule. I mean, I marvel at people who make weekly schedules. These magazine show people must kill themselves, and I know a lot of them, to crank out this stuff. But they're all doing the same thing. They're all running after the same story, you know. Woman kills her six children. Everybody's got to do that story. Who's going to get the girlfriend disappears. Oh, so sad. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. Monica's confusing. That's an interesting show because it combines both politics and... High voltage. I was wondering about that. It seemed like you were getting some territory that you pretty much stay clear of, namely politics. Uh, that's interesting. We just came up with a title. You know, like I like titles have to be about, I, I don't know if it's a good title, but we're sort of working on Media Mayhem and Monica because she is truly a creation of the media and the mayhem. I mean, and she, I saw Clinton get a standing ovation somewhere. Oh, opening his office in Harlem. Yeah, yesterday. But she gets hoots and, and hollers when she walks down the street. Grown man, little girl, both did the same thing. Grown man gets standing ovation, little girl gets hoots and hollers. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, Auschwitz, but it's, of course, it's an interesting imbalance. Entirely, he didn't get entirely standing ovations and certain <laughs> members of the opposite party. <laughs> Yeah, well, he certainly, well, at that time, but he's easily, they, people have forgotten that. It's the Lewinsky affair now, not the Clinton affair. So why, she why has the media, what has, why has it held on to this scarlet letter for so long? Why has the public so unforgiving and so ordinarily forgiving of fallen heroes, or not, not, not that she was a hero, but, you know, interesting. It must be something very deep in the American psyche allows people to hate for so long and to be so vitriolic for so long and to forgive so quickly. And it's just very interesting to me. Depends who's who, right? Yeah, I guess. Unequal treatment. I guess. Maybe if you pick a president, you can never really blame him because you picked him. But if someone is an intruder and a woman, you can always blame them. I don't, know, I don't think I'll ever know the answer, really. HBO. I mean, they've been incredibly supportive of what you've done. How do you know? <laughs> well, you probably fought for some of it, but at least publicly, they, you know, are happy to take credit for it and did deserve it. a good place to be. Yeah. Leave me alone. Yeah. Great boss. And do you think that will change at all? The way the whole industry Not is unless changing. Unless I see this interview, it won't. Um, you know, this is a very strange. We're like the off Broadway at HBO. You know, we don't have big advertising. We don't have, you know, we build our own sets. We, you know, we send out for lunch. We, we don't have elaborate parties and 
big spreads and newspapers and it's nice being off Broadway in such a big corporation because you have the warmth and the comfort of Big Daddy all around you and at the same time you have this incredible freedom to be as close to yourself as you can ever be when you're trying to make things work. Um, so it's just the right size. You know, it's just the right thing. Nobody said to me here, nobody, can you imagine, why didn't you make a reality show like one of those shows? <laughs> nobody said that. It's probably the only place in the world of television that nobody has said that. How, nobody said that. And I, I keep waiting for someone to say, how come you didn't come up with that? How come you didn't think of those shows? Well, I didn't. Um, but in but a relationship to what you're doing, they're not reality. Yeah, but, they're game shows. But so what? Why didn't I come yeah. up with it? It had to do with real people. I'm supposed to push the limits. Why didn't I push them in that direction? It didn't even occur to me. It didn't occur to me. I, I just, you know, when I saw Survivor the first time, I thought it was a joke. I didn't think it would catch on. I'm just in a very strange off-Broadway business, and yet popular. So I'm a peculiar duck, you know. And expect to be, continue to be one. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm disturbed that I didn't think of it. I don't, wouldn't have minded rejecting it if I thought of it, <laughs> and it being a success somewhere else, but it never occurred to me. To put people in a make-believe place, real people, and have them go after gold, I just would never have thought, never thought of it. And if someone, thank God, nobody proposed it to me. Can you imagine if I turned it down? Oh my God! Did never hear the end of it. And oh, I would hear the end, end of it. It would probably be the end of it. Well, speaking of the end, we are at the end of the interview. Ah, yes. And I really appreciate you taking thank so much you. time and uh, letting us know more about what you've been doing here. Thank you. You've just heard the oral history of Sheila Nevins. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center, the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacy of the cable industry's innovations and influence. Thank you for listening.